and he would say, no, you are. I've hired everyone I can find in this niche to help me, but nobody has done a really good job. And you will because I've been listening to your show and it's already better than all the professional coaching that I've gotten from all these other people. And I thought, well, okay, that's a really high compliment. All right, it's going to be 50 bucks an hour, which was like a really great deal for me as a brand new coach who was a college student who was probably not making any money and never had. And he's like, great, okay, here's two grand. You're on my retainer now, right? I've got you on retainer. I can call you. We'll set up calls. I want to call like every other day or four days or something. I can't remember what it was. And you just clock it and you just take it off the balance. And he goes, but first I'm going to teach you some stuff. Raise your prices. You're worth at least 200 bucks an hour. This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you achieve success on your own terms. This is about living a balanced life. This is about living and working according to your values. This is about making money through things that make you happy. At the same time, this is about finding the grit to persevere when you meet a challenge. I'm David Cadavy. I've been an independent creator for more than 10 years. I've written a couple best-selling books, Designed for Hackers, and now The Heart to Start. If you're new here, welcome again. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast's app. Our guest today made an unusual career change. He started out as a lawyer. You heard about another lawyer who made a career change, Jody Attenberg, back on episode 23. Jody became a food and travel writer. Jordan Harbinger did something different. He quit his job as a lawyer to become a podcaster and a very successful one at that. If you listen to podcasts, you've probably already heard The Art of Charm. Jordan examines relationship building and networking to be more effective in business and in life. And The Art of Charm received a brief mention here on Love Your Work when Hollywood set designer J.P. Connolly shared his favorite podcasts on episode 91. In this episode, Jordan will share, law is a prestigious profession with a rich history, so did Jordan hesitate to start podcasting instead? Jordan has interviewed folks such as Shaquille O'Neal, Larry King, and Robert Cialdini. How does he connect with influencers? And how can you do the same? When it comes to building a platform such as a podcast, what really makes a difference in growing the show? You may have seen the quick bonus episode I put up, or maybe you're listening to this in the future and that episode is gone. My new book, The Heart to Start, is now available on audiobook on Audible. Just go to cadavy.net slash audible and new customers will get it for free. Since you like to listen to podcasts, it makes sense that you might prefer to listen to The Heart to Start rather than read it. You've heard sample chapters on episodes 104 and 106, so if you liked those, you will love, of course, the whole book. If you're looking for the kick in the pants to get started on that book or startup or album this year, get The Heart to Start right in your ears. Again, that's at cadavy.net slash audible, cadavy.net slash audible. And we have a new Patreon backer. Thank you, Noel DeMartin. Noel will be getting a custom RSS feed with early access to episodes and bonus content. This is another sponsor-free episode of Love Your Work. I do hope to have some good sponsors on the show again soon. But I think with the change of the year, many of the sponsors have other priorities at this time of year. So plus, I've also been very busy marketing the heart to start. So this episode is brought to you in part by Love Your Work Elite members supporting the show on Patreon. Thank you, Noel, and all the others. If you'd like to support nourishing and thoughtful media, please join at cadavy.net slash donate. 
Here's Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with Jordan Harbinger of The Art of Charm. And Jordan, you were originally a lawyer, and then you kind of invented this new profession for yourself with The Art of Charm. Now, going from lawyer to podcaster is a bit of a leap. And I, I wonder, you know, lawyer is such a an established, uh, prestigious profession. Was there any personal identity stuff you had to let go of to change professions like that? Um, good question. Probably, but I don't really remember because it was 11 years ago. So I'm thinking like, yeah, most likely there was a time where I thought, uh-oh, is this going to be a problem? And, you know, honestly, I was already kind of, I think I'd already gone down that path in law school because I started the show in law school as a hobby 11 years ago, almost now. And so the kids, because we're all kids at that time, were already making fun of me for that. And I remember getting a call from our, not HR, what would you call it? Career services. And she's like, I see you have a little hobby. It's probably fine. But I just, since you're all over the internet with this, you know, you have to be careful what you do and say, and some, you should stop doing it when you get hired because a lot of places, they're not going to want you to do a hobby that they think might look like a business. And I was like, uh, okay, whatever. You know, I don't care about any of this. So I'd already kind of done that. And then when I was an attorney, a lot of my colleagues were thinking that it was pretty cool because by the time I moved to New York, I was still doing the show and I'd talk about the topics on the show nonstop. I, I was always, always, always talking about the topics on the show. And then I got picked up by Sirius XM Satellite Radio and I'd, had, I'd have to leave every Friday. And since I was a lawyer on Wall Street, I was working, you know, I was working at 7 p.m. on Friday. So I would have my office mate and a couple of other associates at my level, they would kind of cover for me and be like, oh, Jordan, you know, he had to run out for a bit. He'll be back. He always comes in early and stays late, which is, you know, maybe true, maybe not. But basically they would just say, oh yeah, Jordan, you know, he's around here somewhere. If anybody was looking for me, that wasn't sort of in on it. And then I would come back to the office at nine after my show and just keep working. And so they would listen while I was doing the show and they were in the office, which is kind of funny. So I, it was, it was, yeah, I had identity. I had a split personality for a while, but I'd already chosen one. And then I thought, well, I'll be a lawyer for a few years and then I'll figure out what else I, what I really want to do with my life. You know, what drove you to pursue being a lawyer in the first place? It was one of those things where I go, oh, uh, I want to do something with my life, you know, that's, that's good. And I have to be careful what my job is because it's your future and every choice you make now you make for the rest of your life, those kind of things. And frankly, yeah, it was, it was, there was not a whole lot of thought put into it. It was just kind of like, okay, I don't have anything else to do. I can't get a real job. Nobody's hiring. This is terrifying. Oh, more education is the solution to this. Well, and I imagine a lot of your classmates were, were like this. A lot of lawyers, like they take a lot of pride in being a lawyer and it's a huge part of their their identity. Did you see much of that? And that apparently was not you. Yeah, no, I wasn't like, I'm so wrapped up in the law. How am I going to change? No, I was like, this is stupid. I just do it for a check. Everyone here kind of you know, hates it. I'm just doing this temporarily. I'm not super worried about this. No, I didn't have any kind of identity crisis. I, and even my parents, when I switched, they were really supportive. So I didn't have to worry about any of that either. 
because I think a lot of people when they switch careers, they they have trouble with that. And it's, if they're young, they've got all this outside pressure from people who are like, you don't understand what you're doing. You're so young. You're going to ruin your career. And, you know, it seems like this is important to you now, but really what's important is getting ahead in the law game and you're going to regret this. I didn't have any of that. So. Oh, I would imagine your classmates maybe gave you a little bit of that though. Yeah, it was only, what was funny is it was only my classmates. It wasn't my colleagues at the law firm. It wasn't my friends. It wasn't my parents. It was people I went to school with. And I just ignored them because I thought, you know, we're law students. Nobody knows what they're going to do. And it was funny because all these people that had made fun of me over and over and over, and they would send me, I could tell they were out drinking some nights and they would listen to the show or something because they, they would send in like fake emails. I need your help. I need your help, man. And I could just tell that they were, and I would get like prank calls from them. And I just thought, eh, but it didn't, it was funny because it was kind of designed to bully, but I really just thought these idiots are going to be applying for a job in five years. You know, these are not people I want to be like. And after I left law school, a lot of those same people, I'd find them on LinkedIn or something, or they'd add me on Facebook and I'd be like, Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. I got out of the law game three years ago and now I own a bar. And I'm like, Oh, uh, interesting. And I, I, I don't say, of course, after that, Gee, that's interesting because you gave me unending shit for doing something I actually liked while we were in school. But, you know, you figured out five years later that law was never for you. So who's the jackass now? I didn't say that. But what I thought was, oh, okay, well, that all came full circle, except for you lost a half a decade of time. So you were starting the podcast while you were in law school? Oh, yeah. It was a year before, no, sorry, two years before I graduated, maybe a year and a half we started the show already because we had heard from a lot of people, career services, the the places we were doing internships with, that it was all about relationships, but nobody knew what that meant. It was all like collect business cards and go to mixers and all this like networking advice from people who don't network or who try, who supposedly teach other people how to network, you know, those kind of things. And I was like, eh, I'm pretty sure that going to mixers is not something that anybody does who has anything else going on. And I noticed that when we were told by HR to go to mixers, nobody would go. And and the partners would be like, no, we're not doing that. And they would say, let's go to this different bar and hang out with each other. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of bonding is better than networking. So I thought, all right, I got to learn how to do this because if I'm hanging out with all my colleagues at some bar or steakhouse, I feel slightly uncomfortable and I don't have an agenda. I don't know what I'm doing. And certainly when I go to some professional mixer where it's not people I see every day, I have no clue what I'm doing. So I've got to figure this out. And that turned out to be the essence of what I was looking for. Because I remember also looking this up online and finding classes like Dale Carnegie classes or professional networking by this HR company. And our company had paid, our law firm had paid for these courses to go learn how to network and create opportunities. And they were garbage. I mean, it was like sitting in the YMCA in a circle with folding chairs where they just had an AA meeting the night before. Like picture this, you know, linoleum floors and you sit in a circle and somebody with an ill-fitting suit who's about 70 pounds overweight is like, everyone go around and introduce yourself and talk about why you're here. And it was the most pathetic situation in the world. And I remember 
going to these sort of like $20 seminars. And some of them were really expensive because they were paid for by the firm. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars. And it was like, you need to have a firm handshake and look people in the eye. And there was at one point when I stopped going, I was walking home and I was thinking, if people don't like me or don't like someone else, it's not because I don't have a firm handshake and I've got, you know, I'm not looking them in the eye. This is ridiculous. This is like my grandpa telling me how to meet women or something. This is not accurate information. This is just the blind leading the blind. This guy who's running this networking group probably wakes up every morning and is like, if I have to run another networking group, I'm going to jump off the roof. You know, he's, these are not real high performers teaching other high performers. This is like, like I said, the blind leading the blind. It's just weak and pathetic in a way. And so I started to read all these psychology books and get interested in what actually is working and applying those things. And that's what The Art of Charm started out as. This was what's actually working, what are high performers actually doing, not this dumb pamphlet that you saw at the dentist's office about how to be more charismatic or persuasive. What are people really doing? Let's break this down and teach this in a way that makes sense. And that was what made sense to me and my business partners. And that's what we focused on. And then we started interviewing the creators of these works, the authors, the the designers, the teachers, and things like that. And that's what became the Art of Charm podcast, but was getting the real high performers, the people who were skipping the BS networking mixer, finding out what they were instead doing with their time. And nobody was talking about this at the time. And when it comes to this social interaction stuff, do you consider yourself a natural for that or have you learned a lot along the way yourself? No, I was definitely not natural. I was introverted, quiet, shy, and we invented a lot of drills and exercises because what we were finding was a lot of high performers and a lot of authors and writers and creators in this area were saying things like, just put yourself out there. And I'm like, um, okay, I don't know what that means. Because when I put myself out there, I stand in the corner with a drink in front of my chest. So the answer is not put yourself out there. And they're like, oh, you know, just when you go out, you know, just talk to everybody. I'm thinking that's like an NBA player saying, look, you just need, you need to get taller like now, because that's going to make the game easier for you. Right. That's unrealistic. Nobody knows how to do that. So put yourself out there is not actionable advice. So I had to go in, figure out what was actionable by testing things that people were saying and creating actionable advice based on it. So, oh, put yourself out there. Great. Okay. So every time I go out there, I stand there with a drink in front of my chest. Oh, just talk to everybody. Well, shoot. I, that's terrifying. Let me, let's see. Who's easier to talk to? All right. Let's talk to some older people. Let's talk to the bartender and the server because they're paid to talk to you anyway. Let's show up when it's not as crowded. So all the staff is kind of bored. Then they're more likely to talk. Okay. That helps shake the rust off. So I started to come up with little baby steps, one of which was wearing a kangaroo suit and these types of crazy, the more outlandish drills, the more sort of insightful stuff, the more insightful results we got. And that's when people started to notice me around Ann Arbor, which is where I was at the time at Michigan, and started to really figure out what was happening. And then other people would say, hey, um, you're doing this stuff and I'm kind of getting what you're doing, but can you take me through the curriculum as well? And I was like, curriculum? are you kidding me? I'm just trying to shake the rust off so I can use this in my professional career. What curriculum are you talking about? And that's kind of when I had people start to pay me for coaching. Did you have any personal resistance to getting paid for that? Uh, yeah, actually I did. It was 
a lot of, well, I'm not a real coach. And people would say things like, that's okay. Well, no, you don't understand. I've never taught this before. That's fine. Just show me what you're doing. That's valuable. And I remember one guy who was a mortgage banker who had been making millions of dollars. Um, He had called us and he was like, hey, I know you do phone coaching. I'm in California. And I was like, well, I'm not a real coach. Or no, he said, please do phone coaching. I'm in California. I can't come meet you in person. I said, well, I'm not really a coach. I don't know if I can do this. He discovered you from your podcast? Yeah, he discovered us from the podcast. And he said, no, you are a coach. You You just don't know it yet. And I thought, okay, that's all dandy, but I'm not. And he would say, no, you are. I've hired everyone I can find in this niche to help me, but nobody has done a really good job. And you will because I've been listening to your show and it's already better than all the professional coaching that I've gotten from all these other people. And I thought, well, okay, that's a really high compliment. All right, it's gonna be 50 bucks an hour, which was like a really great deal for me as a brand new coach who was a college student who was probably not making any money and never had. And he's like, great, okay, here's two grand. You're on my retainer now, right? I've got you on retainer. I can call you. We'll set up calls. I want to call like every other day or four days or something. I can't remember what it was. And you just clock it and you just take it off the balance. And he goes, but first I'm going to teach you some stuff. Raise your prices. You're worth at least 200 bucks an hour. So I raised the price and he's like, no, 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 not for me, for everyone else. I'm getting 50 bucks an hour. I was like, damn it. So I got schooled by this businessman who was having me teach his sales teams and all this. And I'm like, I'm not a real coach. And he's like, look, what you don't understand is that a lot of these other coaches are just winging it and your stuff actually works. Charge what you're worth. And that took me a while to understand. And it sounds like that guy really, really helped you out there. Do you think you would have figured that stuff out on your own without him? Uh, Would have taken me a long time. I'd, I'd have been doing a lot of, I'd have been doing a lot of, all right, now it's $58 an hour. I don't know. I I just would have taken forever to do it. And I remember my business partner at the time, AJ, uh, he was still my business partner, but but way back then he also was. He, I I sort of tried to explain this to him and he just kept charging 50 for himself. And I was like, no, you have to charge more. And he's like, well, I already put 50 on the website and I already told some people that it was 50 and I don't want to charge some people more than others. And I was like, no, you have to. And he eventually quit. And the reason was, well, I'm just not making enough money doing this. And I thought, well, duh, because you're not charging what you're worth, of course. So it was like he got caught in the trap where he wasn't charging what he was worth, but he also didn't want to raise his prices because of all the, like you said, resistance. And that that's when I sort of realized that I had learned an important lesson because I understood that I had to charge what I was worth and he was afraid to do it. It didn't look like fear at the time. It looked like his excuses were legitimate that he didn't, you know, he'd already told some people and he didn't want to change the website and all this other stuff. But really it was just fear. He didn't want to try to charge too much and then have people say no or have people get mad and he didn't want to have to sell himself. So that was an interesting lesson for me because I'd been doing the exact same thing until one of my clients, our first client, you know, slapped slap that idea out of my head. I'd love to hear how some of these social skills and relationship building skills have helped you in podcasting. Selfishly, as a podcaster, I'm always trying to get big guests on. Who was like the first big guest where you're like, wow, I can't believe I got this person 
on my show? And how did that happen? Um, the first big guest where I couldn't believe that somebody was on my show. Let me see. I mean, now you've, you've, now you've interviewed Shaquille O'Neal, Brian Koppelman, creator of Billions, many other people, but kind of your first one. Yeah. Uh, good question. I'm not sure. I had a long time ago. Well, we had Dog the Bounty Hunter. Remember that guy? That was like early on. Hmm. Um, that wasn't really a big deal, but at the time he was on TV. So that was, I was like, wow, it's a celebrity. There's a celebrity. So were you here. nervous before that interview? Yes, I was. And I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. You know, I can't believe this happened. But then, you know, years go by and you get some people here and there and you're not that impressed. But I, I don't know, A-list... Several years ago, we had Larry King come on, which was a big deal because his assistant was a fan of the show and other people had mutual connections. So he got recommended to do it. And I was like, wow, I'm talking to somebody who's interviewed 60,000 people, more probably. And then suddenly he's on my show, kind of probably thinking, what the hell am I doing here? You know, what the heck am I doing talking with this kid? Uh, I'm, I'm too old for this. You know, what am I, what am I doing? Um, and that was it. And I remember being fr like freaking out and he was kind of tired and I was like, Oh, I don't know how to handle this. It's all my fault. If this goes poorly, this is like five, probably five plus years ago now. So I remember that I'm sure there were people before that have made me nervous. There certainly have been, you know, since, but that was one where I thought, Oh, I'm so glad this is over the phone. Cause I'm, I'm freaking out right now. Was there a, a certain point in time where you felt like you really hit an inflection point where you felt like you, you first said to yourself, oh, okay, I've got this. I, I can figure out how to get a hold of somebody and how to persuade them or convince them to be on the show. Yeah, I, there was a time at which I realized that pitching for guests was a sales job. And once I accepted that and I could learn sales techniques to get people to come on the show, it became a lot easier because before it was like, oh, you've got to get big. And, and also the simultaneously learning that it was a sales job, I also learned that it didn't matter because right now there's this trend in the podcast community, especially where it's like, oh, you've got to stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, you've got to get big names and then you'll get people listening to your show. And frankly, it's really not true. Maybe when you're brand, brand new, getting somebody on that's respectable and, and that their name is recognizable would be a big deal because people might click and listen where they normal, normally wouldn't. But once you get to a certain point, it really doesn't matter at all. It really doesn't matter. Like if I have somebody on the show, there very few people, unless we're talking A-list celebrity, are going to come on the show because and listen and become regular fans because I had someone on there. Now, if look, if I interview Russell Branch, Akil O'Neill, I'm going to get new fans. But if I have somebody who's one rung higher on the ladder than me and on the internet, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. So it was really liberating because it became it became a it became simpler for me to get guests that mattered because I didn't have to get super famous people all the time, no matter what, to come on the show and do this and that for me. Uh, and I also knew that it since it was a sale it was a sales job in the first place i could figure out how to create a process to solve the problem does that make sense yeah so how do you go about thinking about that the the process uh through which to get in touch with them and then also to pitch them in a way that makes them want to be on the show yeah you have to frame things and this is also going to sound super obvious but you know it's now it's you're you're framing things in a way that are 
is value for the guest. And also, frankly, look, there's no shortcut to this. The real, what I knew was, and I talked to a lot of press people and I was like, hey, can we have a frank conversation? What's going to make this work? And they were like, look, we're looking at numbers. I don't care that you've had so-and-so on. These are all book launches. We're looking for A-list names that I recognize. I'm not going to go Google somebody and they're a big YouTuber or something like that. And then, da, da, da. no, they want to see the numbers. They want to make sure there's ROI. They sit there. Good PR people have spreadsheets, right? They're like, how many impressions are we going to get? What's the impact that we're going to get here? And that became really important. So I started focusing on that because I think a lot of people on on the web, when they're starting like a thought leader business, they do this thing where they say, they think, okay, I need to look like I have a lot of stuff going on. Instagram followers and Twitter followers and all that stuff works to a degree. It might get a press person to open your email or it might get a really amateur press person to think that you can do the job. But truthfully, they're going to look at the numbers that you bring on the show. And it works. There's a lot of people right now that they have all these big YouTubers on there and they've, they, they seem to be everywhere and they've released two books. You know, they got their Amazon bestseller and they've got their Instagram channel, but really they're kind of going through the motions. That's, if you look at their guest roster though, they're still having a hard time booking really top level talent because they haven't worked on their craft a lot. And those people also have really good press and really good assistance. And those people can see through somebody who's building their online influencer business. And they're going to see that this there's, they can start to tell the difference between smoke and mirrors and the real deal. So I started focusing on the real deal, which is how many people listen to each episode of the show. That's what matters for people that really know what they're doing. So I focused on that and I didn't worry that I didn't have an Instagram account that was super active. And I didn't worry that yeah, I didn't have a YouTube channel. I focused on what they actually cared about, not what would make me look cool at the next conference. Okay, so the obvious stuff for our listeners, whether they're trying to get somebody on a podcast or whether they're trying to uh, connect with somebody to get mentorship or something like that is obviously to think about it from the perspective of the person that they're talking to. And in some cases, such as with the podcast they're talking to, somebody who's a PR person has a spreadsheet, is looking to gain a certain number of impressions, and you have to make that sales pitch and convince them uh, through that. Yeah. And also, look, I did that whole thing where it's like, okay, first I'm going to get somebody that's my friend. Then I'm going to get somebody that's an author that sees that I had my friend on and they're going to do it. And then I'm going to get a bigger author and a bigger author and a bigger author. And then eventually an A-list celebrity. And to a certain degree that may work, but really what would work is if you created a show that was much more valuable, that created a lot of people interesting, uh, interested in it and created interesting content for them to listen to. So right now, it's funny because you might look at an episode and think like, oh my gosh, you had this famous person on the show. It must get a ton of downloads. It might, but what might get even more is somebody that no one has ever heard of that my audience loves. So I had a friend of mine who is the head of the FBI behavioral analysis unit. I had him come on the show. That was a much more popular show than a show I did with this person who's an expert marketer and is all over YouTube and has a ton of followers more people downloaded, listened to, and enjoyed the show that I did that was useful. And I just kept doing those. And now, of course, then I get Shaquille O'Neal. Then I get Russell Brandt. Then I get Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, whoever, 
and name it. They want to see the numbers. They don't really care that somebody they consider to be five rungs lower on the ladder also did the show. Sure, there's a little credibility there, but not really. They just want to sell copies of their book or, or whatever it is that they're promoting. And that's what matters. And they want to do it with an audience that's smart and educated. I'd love to dig in on this so much more, but our time is obviously really limited today. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people get more of you, Jordan Harbinger? Sure, yeah. You can look for The Art of Charm podcast anywhere that uh, you get your podcasts. That's The Art of Charm podcast. My name is Jordan Harbinger. You can also go to theartofcharm.com. And there we have challenges and a lot of resources for people to get outside their comfort zone, create networking connections, build relationships. I mean, you name it. We are all about walking the walk. Jordan, thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jordan Harbinger. His show, The Art of Charm, really is one of the best podcasts out there. The conversations are well-polished and the guests are fantastic. So go ahead and give it a listen. Is Love Your Work helping inspire you to pursue the life and work that you love? If so, I could really use your help. This show takes work and it takes money to make. To keep making the show and to keep it free for everyone, it needs your support. Besides subscribing and reviewing the show, there's one big thing you can do to help, and that is to donate. I work to make this show nourishing and thoughtful in an economy that's all about grabbing attention. This is not the short route to success. If you believe in Love Your Work's message of living a balanced life and finding fulfilling work, please join Love Your Work Elite, hosted on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me, vote with your dollars, and keep Love Your Work going you're going to get bonus content and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at lywelite.com. That's lywelite.com. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by top Love Your Work elite members, such as Arif Akhtar. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Kadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Jarena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of... Academy Inc.